Thank you, guys. Thank you, Sandy. And it's a pleasure to be um, here this morning. So the topic of fertility is sort of um, a great... The great timing of that is to talk to individuals who first manage um, children before actually getting into childbearing potentially. So you can think about what are the concepts we need to apply to um, our patients and why this is important to equally think about it at this time as opposed to at the time when they're planning pregnancy. So just as a reminder, the why of why we even think about it or why we're studying uh, for the impact of IBD on fertility is that the peak incidence of IBD overlaps with prime childbearing years. The impact of disease activity in IBD meds on medications and pregnancy outcomes is obviously a big concern to both patients and physicians. And the impact of disease and sex, um, on sexual and relationship health is an important part of disease management, which if you saw yesterday in the morning, um, the cases there is about sexual uh, function. And this is uh, definitely one of the most under-discussed topics. Obviously, in our clinic as well, Sandy was on the panel and sort of said this isn't something that we typically um, are routinely talking about, but it's something that people do want to talk about, especially as they go on to college. And we'll talk about that in the uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll talk. So IBD and fertility, just in general, if you make general statements about fertility, this is what we know, that in ulcerative colitis, it appears to be in the non operated, those women who have not undergone a J-pouch, that there appears to be normal fertility when age-matched to controls. Voluntary childlessness in IBD is higher, particularly in Crohn's disease, and I'll show you that data in just a moment. Women with active Crohn's disease, due to the potential negative correlation with ovarian reserve, are definitely also at risk. We used to kind of note that just having Crohn's and just having disease activity doesn't appear to impact fertility, which in the end um, was probably an overstatement about the simplification of ongoing active inflammation. We know that J-pouches um, are, the mo- are the highest uh, rate of infertility in our IBD patients, and there's no doubt this conversation must occur before you send one of our um, young females to a, for a J-pouch, and this needs to be transparent in the conversation, because they're going to read about it. And some of the reasons why families may push back on the idea of a J-pouch is, without telling you, is because of fear of the impact of J-pouch on fertility. It's amazing when you start sort of probing into what are sort of the biggest concerns, other than the obvious, meaning the fact that they're having their colon removed. A lot of parents want the child not in the room and want to sort of just double-check with you about the rates of infertility that they, that they read about. Don't forget, in men, there's also the concept of um, some reversible sperm abnormalities in the phase of sulfasalazine. Methotrexate may also have an impact on sperm morphology, and I'll show you a little bit more about the role of TNFs. And erectile dysfunction is more so in men. Sexual dysfunction is tied to the uh, depression than it is in women. And with women, it's typically tied to disease um, and surgery and dyspareunia and pelvic adhesions. So when... um, when there is a male who does disclose to you that there is um, issues with sexual functioning, often they should be seeing your behavioral health team. So just as a reminder, because it gets very confusing about the definition of fertility, uh, fecundability, and infertility. Uh, so fecundability or fecundity is just can you have children, the ability to actually bear a child. Uh, it's really the fertilization, either done naturally or by, by assisted reproductive technology. Fertility is the ability to actually 
conceive and become pregnant through normal sexual activity. And infertility is uh, defined by World Health, World Health Organization as one year of trying legitimately at the time of ovulation. So the 12-month window um, really does vary where, how old the patient is when they're actually coming to see you because, as you'll see, age is the sort of predominant variable in deciding how quickly you want to refer a, a patient to the uh, fertility folks. So what's interesting is most of the decisions made around pregnancy and fertility are based on lack of knowledge. Um, a lot of it is a perception issue, and we have a perception problem when it comes to actually childbearing and, um, and IBD, and particularly concerns about safety of therapies and fear of passing on. So what this slide actually shows you is the idea that there is a fear of passing on IBD to the baby, the fear of having complicated pregnancy, fear of not being able to take care of my baby is really not where they're focusing their time. They, they don't even think about that really as part of an issue as it relates to IBD. But really the idea, the fear of, causing, uh, of IBD causing harm to the baby, and I can tell you, um, as I noted yesterday, that the number one reason of if you actually list your priorities of what you want to talk about, and we have our uh, poster, one of the med students from uh, ICON has a poster today showing that it depends on where you are in your preconception or pregnancy state into what you want to talk about. And it's not surprising that most of the concerns in the preconception which surrounds the idea of being on medication is that how is my uh, IBD going to affect my baby? And it's sort of an amazing opportunity to spend your time saying, all right, great question, this is the point. Inflammatory control is king, and if we can get your inflammation under control, this will sort of solve and um, relieve a lot of the fears that you have regarding the influence of disease on IBD. What's interesting is that despite the perceptions and despite the fears, we aren't seeing actually an increase of elective abortions in general in IBD patients. Um, the time we do tend to see more elective abortions is actually in the clinical trial setting. When patients become pregnant during the first, typically they're in the beginning uh, weeks of the, of the clinical trials, it is not uh, infrequent that women will actually choose to actually have an abortion. Often these were unplanned, obviously. They weren't coming into the pregnancy. As a reminder that up to 50% of pregnancies in the U.S. are unplanned. Uh, so you have to be ready. Um, and I used to make fun of Jim Markowitz because he used to say, I don't use methotrexate in my population. I can't trust them not to get pregnant. And I said, that's only in Long Island. If you come to Manhattan, we don't have that issue of worrying about where these unplanned pregnancies. But it seems to be that this is something that is also happening in our space. I apologize for the um, size of the two tables, but this was uh, a systematic review that was published looking at whether indeed voluntary childlessness is a legit thing. It is all over the place. Some studies have um, shown a significant difference between controls, particularly in Crohn's disease, in female patients. I'll show you the male data in just a minute. And really the reality is when they tied it to that the number one reason was because of lack of knowledge. It wasn't because they were um, necessarily convinced that their disease or the medications were going to actually impact their, their baby. It was more the fact that they just didn't know, and they actually didn't have enough knowledge to make decisions on what they should do with the baby. And this is just showing you, this was recently published, showing you that uh, the scores of the Crohn's and Colitis Pregnancy No, which is the knowledge uh, questionnaire that 
has been studied. Um, late Richard Fedorik and his group in Edmonton really have been looking at randomizing patients who have low knowledge to be able to get extra preconception counseling. And voluntary childlessness really was associated with um, a lower score on the, uh, on the knowledge score. So, and there's a lot of studies that have confirmed this. Um, that there's a, a tie between the two. So if our patients are not knowledgeable and they're choosing maybe to not get pregnant because they don't know uh, otherwise that they can or the importance of inflammatory control as being sort of our focus, let's turn to age. Um, as I I'm, I'm sort of feel like a broken record when I talk about fertility because I cannot, un, I cannot overestimate the uh, role of age. You know, age really is the number one predictor of infertility, regardless if you have IBD or not. And then you have to remember, as you add factors to age, you sort of develop your infertility computer score in your head and say, there's an urgent need for me to send this patient to one of my fertility specialists. Um, And this is just showing you that um, after 34, really, age below 30 can be impacted. Um, with, if you see before IBD diagnosis, which is the red bar, you could see that after the age of 30, um, in, there tends to be a drop in um, fertility. But the biggest drop really starts to happen, truth be told, after the age of 34. And 35, you do be uh, designated as a geriatric pregnancy. And it's just showing you that age, regardless, even if you don't have IBD, is a major player in the discussion about fertility. And then um, we've looked at another uh, factor that does inflammation impact fertility, actually, because a lot of, as I noted before, most people would say that inflammation, you know, we've not really seen an impact of having active disease on fertility, which really what I keep saying about this area of fertility and pregnancy is the lack of data does not mean it's negative. And we tend to say that a lot in this field. And when I see patients, you know, on my, at my Wednesday clinics, and I'm having to tell them that we actually don't have the data. This is what I can tell you. It's very stressful for them because no wonder why they don't have high knowledge-based scores is because there's not a lot of information out there. So part of it is just knowing the literature and understanding the impact of inflammation. And what this study showed um, from the group uh, up in Amsterdam is that the knowledge or the fact that um, inflammation impacts subfertility. Subfertility really speaks to how long it takes you to get pregnant. It's more that, and there is a lot of work being done in psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis as well, looking at the impact of just chronic inflammation on the ability to get pregnant or the time to get pregnant. And this was one of the few studies that actually showed that if you had three or more flares in the uh, year Uh, that you were attempting to conceive, there was definitively an impact of not being able to get pregnant during that time. And we have data from um, studies that have shown that if you have a higher CDAI, granted CDAI is, as we know, there's lots of issues with the CDAI, but just as a as a marker of inflammation, there's an inverse correlation with anti-malarian hormones suggesting that there is a decrease in ovarian reserve, which is sort of our way as GI docs that we can actually measure ovarian reserve. And it's more relevant in someone who is younger than someone who's older. I'm just going to tell you your AMH levels are going to be low above 35. That sort of fits with the graph that I showed you. It's really important to know more of your AMH levels in people who shouldn't have low AMH levels and decide whether or not inflammation is impacting um, their ovarian reserve. There's also ultrasound you could do, obviously. That's not what we do, but AM, meaning 
GIs, but on the, um, on the marker of fertility, AMH is something you can measure. So I just threw this in here about RA because it's interesting. We don't think about the impact of inflammation as we don't learn from a lot of outside diseases. But one of the lessons that we learned from psoriasis, for example, where uh, the dermatologists are the doctors that most stop therapies, meaning if you take GI, derm, rooms, the dermatologists are most commonly the ones that are stopping anti-TNF therapies in their patients, saying, you know what, it's just a rash. Like, what's the big deal? Why do you need, you know, therapy when you have just a rash? Well, just a rash, um, just so everyone knows, just a rash is not just a rash. This is systemic inflammation. And actually, untreated psoriasis patients have an even bigger fertility problem than IBD. And so it's really interesting that we're looking at the role of inflammation as an impact on fertility, and, the, and it goes on e- even in the rheumatoid arthritis space. Granted, these women tend to be older, so there's also the impact of age on RA when it comes to fertility. But I can tell you there's an unexplained subfertility in RA patients that I think is easy to explain. I think we just have to look for uh, markers of inflammation. Um, and so this, again, is a really important area in the field of uh, immune diseases in terms of getting pregnant. So I noted at the beginning that UC patients in general, we haven't shown other than age, is associated with a decreased risk of fertility. But the problem is that's really uh, taking out the patients really who have the impact of the J pouch. So the next slide is really probably one of the most important slides to take home with you in your mind about the impact of a J pouch creation. As a reminder, when you take the colon out or have a subtotal colectomy and you leave the rectum in place, that is not an issue with fertility. An abdominal colectomy, which means just really functioning or operating in the space that does not involve the pelvis, is not where problems arise. It's the minute that the actual J pouch or pelvic dissection is happening, where there's the removal of the rectum, um, rectal mucosa, and there's the creation of the actual uh, Uh, J pouch. And what I want to show you here is that compared to the general population or the control population, you could see that fertility was decreased by 57%. And so when women ask me how, what's the likelihood of me, you know, of having a fertility issue, I say right now, based on older literature based on live births. The only problem with this retrospective um, data set, which is the best we got, shockingly, is actually the fact that they counted fertility based on if you gave birth to a baby. Now, a lot can happen between getting pregnant and actually having a live birth, but this was sort of the surrogate for adjusted fertility rates. Um, And this was just showing you that compared to the general population, it dropped to 0.43. Now, a UC patient who just had a total, I mean, who just had a um, subtotal colectomy but had the rectum in place, their risk of infertility is very similar to the general population. So that's where we even know true that the minute you create that J pouch, that's where your fertility rate basically drops in half. Now, a lot of these surgeries were open, and we have some um, newer evidence small but newer uh, evidence that the laparoscopic era is actually improving the fertility rates in women who undergo J pouches. Uh, again, you will, you will be frightened by the size and how small these studies are. This is a 21-patient um, study um, in going uh, loop takedown, meaning after their laparoscopic IPAA, their ileostomy is taken down. And what they were basically trying to say is what happens when you go into the pelvis is you have a risk 
of adhesions of the ovary or the adnexa and the fallopian tubes, and you get obliteration, essentially, of the fallopian tubes so that fertilization cannot occur. So it really does become a plumbing issue. And the theory being is that laparoscopic surgery reduces the amount of adhesions and makes the pelvis essentially safer to be able to have less adhesions impacting the ability to fertilize an egg. So that was sort of the small study um, that was published um, almost 10 years ago on um, the idea that you get less uh, adhesions with laparoscopic surgery. And um, we have a few other studies that have showed that if you could actually um, give laparoscopic versus open, they sent questionnaires to people, not to say that that's the most legit study, and they looked at how long did it take you to get pregnant when you had laparoscopic IPAA. This was like 51 patients versus um, open IPAA. And it appears that at a year... They both looked the same, but over time, more women with laparoscopic had babies. So I want everyone to understand that whilst we may say that laparoscopic improves fertility, it's all relative. Um, And the idea being that um, it's really about the time to get pregnant. One of the interesting things when a lot of the patients are freaked out about the idea of um, getting biologics, for example, or anti-TNF in the face of pregnancy, we actually have um, a study that was done that I mentioned yesterday that a patient was given anti-TNF plus IVIG uh, to get pregnant. These are non-IBD patients, by the way, because the idea being that TNF is an important mediator potentially of um, stress on the uterus, for example, or may actually be associated with um, miscarriage or inability to get pregnant. So this was an interesting study that they actually used adalimumab to see if they can get women pregnant, and adalimumab plus IVIG actually was better than IVIG alone. So this was just sort of, I always have this in my back pocket in case there's an intense discussion about the role of um, biologics in the face of both fertility and safety. This is that small study I was saying about open versus laparoscopic. You could see the numbers, 20, um, I exaggerated, it's only 37, uh, 20 in the laparoscopic group and 17 in the open group. And what I, if you focus sort of um, over time, you could see that the laparoscopic group eventually all get pregnant, or not all, but a large proportion of them get pregnant. And then the group that is in the open sort of flattens. It's as good as it's going to get. So the idea being is that maybe we're over that era of um, impact of surgery on um, pregnancy uh, or the ability to get pregnant. Um, there was another study that, was, again, was small, uh, looking at uh, IPAA versus control, meaning appendectomy, um, looking at the, and this was a laparoscopic surgery, both of them, so they were comparing two laparoscopic type of surgeries, showing that there doesn't appear to be a huge difference, but I will tell you that if you look um, at a year, there is a difference between uh, fertility. So I think there's still an impact. It's not that we're having a... Um, a telling moms that we know exactly that the rate is going to be as similarly dropped to 43%, just like what we saw in that uh, UK database. But we need to be uh, very sensitive to what we're saying because we have zero um, and, and we don't have any prospective data where we are actively collecting patients post J-pouch and following them prospectively to actually say whether or not they have a problem getting pregnant. So we, a lot of our data is really um, database, and Sonia's here. She could speak to sort of all her work um, with the Danish cohort. But the idea that we're looking at databases to get information uh, on, our, on how to communicate with patients when we don't have real-world data in front of us to counsel appropriately. 
So I want to say everything that I'm saying with sort of like a sensitivity to the fact that fertility has not been studied prospectively. And that's an important um, discuss- distinction to make when we talk about data. Some people ask, does the type of amastomosis matter? Meaning if you do a hand-sewn versus um, a staple, and actually there's no data to support that one type of anastomosis um, is uh, affecting um, fertility. And then um, there's also the question of men and fertility. We talk a lot about uh, female fertility. Uh, there, there are some of our um, older studies, the studies about five years ago, suggested that in uh, Crohn's disease there appears to be perhaps some more infertility in male patients um, than in ulcerative colitis patients. Um, again, the reasoning needs to be explored and whether or not the impact of disease and inflammation um, or whether or not there's an impact of medication, which we haven't found um, so far. And they also looked at whether or not um, in males there are paternity rates of um, compared to their siblings, for example, and they didn't show that actually um, males with IBD had a problem having babies. Uh, so they compared it all to, and also looked at the female partner outcome, and it didn't appear to be impact, and this was a large Utah database. So paternity rates did not appear to be different compared to their um, their siblings, for example, and birth outcomes did not appear to be different as well. So right now, there doesn't appear to be a ton of data on male infertility and just a smattering of studies that suggest there may be in Crohn's disease, not in UC. And also what's interesting is this was um, also from the Danish cohort showing that birth rates decrease in females post-IPAA, but increase in males. So... um, figure that out. So then (laughs) the idea that, so if you look in females compared to the general population, for example, after both a two-stage or a three-stage or just look in surgery um, altogether, you can see that um, the fertility rates are down compared to the general population. And you know what's interesting is that we often see um, the year before surgery, even in that UK database, so maybe people feel an urgency to get pregnant before surgery, that we see a spike in actual number of births leading up to or before the surgery actually happens in females. We saw that exact same uh, pattern in the UK database that I was showing you. And in males, it doesn't appear that the birth rates are impacted uh, actually post-IPAA. So that speaks to what we were just saying about uh, how surgery impacts uh, males. In terms of um, sexual functioning, just because this is something we need to know about because it's something possible, and I've had a few of my sort of college male patients sort of once they feel confident before they head off to college, and obviously the mom is not in the room, um, and there's often a discussion around whether or not there's any impact on erectile dysfunction, and as you can see, obviously the sur- those males who underwent surgery had a significant um, increase Um, in erectile dysfunction, and that sort of is also tied to mood, so I don't want to dismiss the fact that there is also a behavioral component, but all of our surgeons will consent, and you know, you've all had a call after you've sent your patients to the surgeon calling you and telling you, you didn't tell me that there's a uh, risk of erectile dysfunction after uh, IPAA, and my son is really disappointed and upset, and it becomes this whole conversation. I try to tell them that this is what a surgeon must consent to. This is part of their natural consent language, and we've all, I've had 
that touch whatever this is. Um, in 20 years, one male patient who actually had erectile dysfunction post-IPAA. I did have one patient. I don't know. We can talk about that if that's a common finding. Um, but again, in um, Crohn's disease, uh, men without a Crohn's disease operation, uh, there was actually also an increased rate. So again, tied to uh, possibly depression and anxiety. A, lot, a big question that gets asked is, do, will the, um, any of the medications actually impact sperm quality? And this was a study that was recently published showing that TNF did not actually impact sperm quality. Um, there was some smattering of studies originally that when it was looked at whether or not thiopurines and then also looking at TNF, and this was uh, showing that there did not appear to be um, an impact on sperm quality. And getting to the um, assisted reproductive technology, and really um, most of the work has been done by Sonia and um, the group in Denmark. And one thing was for sure, which I appreciated that you, that you studied back the, um, the reason for infertility with assisted reproductive, which I have that slide, so I added that, um, was the fact, you know, was there something tied to actually being able to get pregnant or stay pregnant? That was sort of a, an important distinction that sort of freaked everybody out in 2016. And then uh, you sort of calmed us down a little bit in 2017 when you um, sort of told us that the impact of assisted reproductive technology in Crohn's disease uh, not UC, that was sort of initial discussion, but then you actually divided it up into was it a problem with getting pregnant post um, in IBD patients or was it a problem actually having live births? And where you saw the biggest effect was actually in being able to get pregnant. Um, so I think that again speaks to the idea that we need to focus on ensuring that we understand why women are having problems getting pregnant, whether or not, and, and sending them to our fertility friends early and not waiting, especially in people who've had surgery or have very active disease, you must get the inflammation under control. Um, one of the reasons why it's so confusing and why patients have such difficulty trying to decide what to do is because no one is on the same page. We looked at within Sinai, which I thought, no, this is when I was in West Sinai, so at Cedars, I thought myself and Fleshner, my surgeon and my OBs, I thought we were sort of all on the same page. And then we started to see that women were getting a lot of different information on should I get an IPAA? When should I get pregnant? Should I have my first surgery, get pregnant, then have my J-pouch? Does it matter now? Should I just get pregnant after my J-pouch? There was so much variation in care, and the obstetricians sort of account for part of the biggest type of, mis of misinformation, unfortunately, when it comes to whether or not there is a fertility impact of the disease. You could see that um, the... Uh, OBs are the ones that are talking the most about there's a huge impact on fertility. We are less uh, vocal about sort of the impact of the disease, but, I mean, we're talking about fertility, I'm sorry, and the OBs are sort of not as... Um, as understand this space, and they're actually saying, don't worry, get pregnant, not really talking about the impact of having um, surgery on fertility. And then also between colorectal and, um, and GI docs, there was the timing of the IPAA. We weren't on the same page. Some were saying get it now. Some were saying delay the IPAA, meaning have your first surgery, get pregnant, and then have your J-pouch. This is within a center that we manage co-manage patients together. So it makes you think, imagine how the mom feels when they're sitting in front of you and there's all this confusion. And so I think it really spoke to the idea that the problem is we're not all on the same page. What may help people get on the same page is the idea of preconception clinics. And this was um, 
um, studied where they actually looked at women who actually came pregnant versus those that were counseled in the preconception state. And obviously, when you're able to get information to a woman who's considering pregnancy, is probably better than already pregnant and having the information sort of after the fact. So what the study actually looked at is different outcomes, and they showed that folate intake was better, smoking cessation, less discontinuation, disease activity was improved, disease activity during pregnancy. So the idea that maybe if we give them the knowledge before, keep them on their medications, instill in them not stopping their medication, that we will have a better impact on disease activity, which will then help the whole cascade of getting pregnant and staying pregnant. I mean, that's sort of the, con- the, the main point. So I think, um, I hope everyone appreciates my egg, but I think to... <laughs> So what I, the main point is, in order to actually um, really focus on the patient who wants to know about pregnancy, whether it's early when they're in our clinics, whether they're going off to college, whether you're seeing them during college, it doesn't matter. Because even those that are brought in by their moms, they actually want to know, even though they don't want to talk about it in front of their child. And it's possible that they may pull you aside and they want to just confirm that these drugs don't actually impact Uh, fertility or doesn't impact their ability to have babies. I mean, that's sort of like what is killing them often, actually. They just want to make sure that the decision they're making for their child today is not going to impact. So I think that there's really um, an important team that has to be in place to manage these, uh, these important topics. And obviously at front and center is the patient and their partner. Uh, GI with some IBD and fertility uh, expertise or knowledge, at least. And I don't think expertise is necessarily the right term. Um, I am I am really really clear to my patients that they must be seen at last at least once by a maternal fetal medicine specialist. There is so much knowledge that they can teach us about managing women with immune diseases in general. It's not just IBD. They're seeing women with lupus. They're seeing women with other immune conditions, and they can be really helpful at helping us make sure that we're safely giving our therapies and also that the, that the baby is, is growing properly. A fertility specialist, remember, 37-year-old uh, who's post-J-pouch and may have had it when they were 16 and had an open surgery and they're coming to you and telling you that I've been trying for three months, please don't tell them to wait the 12 months of the WHO definition of infertility um, because really the clock is ticking in these patients and they need to be at least getting salpingograms to make sure that there's no sort of issues with obliteration of the fallopian tubes and get them to one of your fertility specialists or reproductive endocrinologists. And remember that in women who've had uh, extensive surgery or any pelvic surgery, if they are going to have C-section, Make sure to have your colorectal surgeon in the room. It's really important that if that they need to be help that baby come out if there's excessive scar tissue. So it really is a team approach from literally the time of decision on conception all the way uh, to delivery. So thank you so much for your attention. <laughs>